0: May be seated. Our sermon text today is Luke 19, verses 45 to 48. Before we attend to that, though, let's go before our Heavenly Father in prayer. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that you are with us today. For if you were not, then all that we would be doing here would be worthless and empty, meaningless you are with us you guide us you lead us we pray that you would speak to us now through your word cause us to see you with eyes that have been opened though they were once blind help us to hear you with ears that once were deaf but now hear clearly give us a tender heart in which you might implant the truth of your word, even the gospel of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Follow along now as I read from Luke 19, verses 45 to 48. This is the inspired word of God. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And we see in this passage uh, a passionate disagreement, if you will. Uh, 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 An action whereby Christ very clearly voiced his displeasure with the authorities that be. As I was thinking about this, just this very morning, actually, my my mind went back to a conversation that I had had uh, just yesterday with my family. Uh, We were talking about how how when I was a basketball coach or a, or a baseball coach, uh, how, how sometimes I would get a little upset with the officials, thinking that maybe they hadn't called things exactly as they should. And and my family was expressing to me how they always get a little nervous when, when I get a, you know, upset about this because they're they're afraid that I'm going to embarrass them by getting uh, kicked out of the game or something like that. And I tell them, well, no, it's 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 not a matter of just just losing your temper. You want to you want to actually stay under control, but 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 communicate truth to the to the official and, and do it in a way that that they're going to understand. And even though you're passionate, you know, you're you're still in control. And it's a fine line for sure. Uh, people have stepped over the line many times in the past. I, I remember the time that that Tiger's first base coach, Lloyd McClendon, who was then the manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates, uh, stole first base. Now you say, wait Pete, I know baseball rules, you can't steal first base. No, he he actually picked up first base and walked off with it. (laughs) Or the time that Earl Weaver, who was manager of the Baltimore Orioles, I just saw this picture the other day, Him, after the umpire had ejected him from the game, he turned and he said, Well, you're out of here, too, and he tried to eject the umpire. Well, that didn't work. (laughs) Bobby Knight, perhaps, is the most famous one. He was the basketball coach at Indiana, famous for winning national titles and for throwing folding chairs across the basketball court. You can lose your temper and get out of control at times. That's not what Jesus was doing here. This isn't a passage that speaks of a temper tantrum that Jesus threw. It is a very settled conviction on his part that has led him to act fully within his best thoughts, completely rightly in all that he does. We need to see that this passage centers on the temple. Not just centers geographically, but just what the passage is about centers on the temple. I think we're to see it it could break down into three parts. Maybe we'd call the three parts Jesus returns to the temple, Jesus retrains in the temple, then ultimately Jesus replaces the temple. We're going to spend most of our time on the first of those. Jesus returns. To the temple—that's really the the meat of this passage, if you if you will—and and if we're going to understand the passage, then we need to understand first of all the temple, what the temple was. We need to understand that it, that it first of all wasn't just a building; it was it was actually a complex. Uh, there the, there was numerous areas involved with it, and it was it wasn't just like a church today that we might have, or even some kind of church complex okay the the temple wasn't just any given place of worship it was physically at the center of Jerusalem it was the place where God had literally taken up residence he had decided that he would exist in the midst of his people he would descend upon a place and this was the place he had chosen so when in the Old Testament we see this talk about God's house It's not just talking about any generic place of worship. Sometimes we say that, and you know, we came here to the church this morning and we're here in God's house. And and I think there's a sense in which I understand what we're saying there, but there's a sense in which it's a very wrong application of what's been said by God. When he's talking about his house, he's talking about the temple specifically. And if we want to actually bring that forward into a New Testament Christian viewpoint. More specifically, he, he calls us temples. And so God's house really is more us than the building. But that's a side point. Bringing back to uh, our focus, what what was the temple? It was at the center of the city. It wasn't just building it was a complex it was the the dwelling place of God and as such it was a religious center obviously it was the place where sacrifices were made that atoned for the sins of the people it was a place where people gathered together to pray with one another but it was also in many ways a political center you see Israel existed not just as as the church as it were it was also a, a nation And so there was this church-state nexus or or overlap that occurred in Israel, and and Jerusalem was at the center of it, much as Washington, D.C. might be in our country, and the temple would perhaps be seen as the White House or the Capitol building in that nation. And so, so it was a religious center, but it was also a political center Now, we've got to realize that that while it was a political center and and there was a a governmental and political entity in Israel, that there was another political entity involved at the time because Rome had occupied Israel, much the same as perhaps we think of France during World War II, occupied by Germany. Uh, So it was in Israel. and, And the people of Israel longed to be set free from Roman occupation. In fact, they they were confident and even sure that, that a Messiah would come as prophesied and he would deliver them from bondage and occupation. They were right, but they thought that the bondage and occupation from which they would be delivered by the Messiah was that of the occupying Roman rulers. As is often the case, God's plan differed from man's plan. And so when Jesus came to Jerusalem at the end of his ministry. You'll recall, he's just had Good Friday in the passage before. He's just had uh, Palm Sunday in the passage before that. We just had Good Friday in Easter, but but we had bounced out of Luke. We're back in Luke now. Uh, We've just had Palm Sunday. He's entered in, and now what's he going to do? He's in Jerusalem. Is he going to march right into Jerusalem? Pontius Pilate's living room? No, he doesn't. Is he going to go toe-to-toe with the Roman forces that are there? No, he doesn't. What's most important to him, what, what he wants to do immediately is go to the temple. He wants to address the problems that are taking place in the temple. And There's a very important principle that that has great application for us today. And that is this, that God is always far more concerned with the way his people relate to him than he is concerned with the way his people relate to the government. We should be more concerned with the church becoming more holy than we are concerned with America becoming great again. We should be more concerned with God's kingdom, which, which does not come on the power of any political party or any politician, but rather comes through Christ Jesus. Further, far more time and energy should be spent worrying about our own sins as a church than we spend worrying about the sins of our non-Christian neighbors. And it, if, if we believe that we can only live holy lives By being made alive by Christ, if we believe that we were before Christ came into our lives, dead in our sins and trespasses, how could we possibly expect our non-Christian neighbors to live holy lives anyway? If we truly long for them to live holy lives, then the way that we need to go about that is by sharing the gospel with them so that they might experience the new relationship and the new life that we have in Christ Jesus And when we quote 2 Chronicles 7.14, we've all heard this passage. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. We need to realize that the proper referent for us in that is not necessarily the United States of America, but rather the church. God is speaking to his people, the church. And when we repent of our sins, when we trust more in him, when we cry out for healing, it should be for the church. That the church might be more holy, that the church might act in a way that it is called to act. We need to confess our sins, repent of our sins, and walk in faithfulness as Christ has done and does We look far too much like the world around us. We are far too quick to abandon God who would stand by us. We are not dedicated to the worship of a holy God as we should be and we do not work heartily in all things unto his glory. We quite simply are not what God has intended for us to be. That is exactly the scenario that existed. In Jerusalem, as Jesus strolls into the temple, the people of God were not what he intended for them to be. Now, Jesus, of course, had been to the temple before. This wasn't his first time there. We recall, most notably, perhaps, in the the beginning of Luke, back in Luke 2, there's the birth narratives of Luke, and then what happens is his parents take him to the temple that he might be dedicated to the Lord. And then the very next passage after that speaks of of when he was young and how they had visited Jerusalem. And then they had left and lost him somehow. And where did they find him when they came back? Once more, in the temple. So the life of Christ begins in Luke's gospel, telling us two stories of Jesus going to the temple. And now at the end of his life, once more, we were at the temple. Of course, he'd been there in between. In fact, Mark tells us that the day before on, on Palm Sunday, as he had come into Jerusalem, he had actually gone to the temple on Palm Sunday. But seeing as it was late, he merely looked around and retreated back to Bethany. And then on Monday, the next day, that's where we are now, as Jesus comes to the temple, and he knows what he's going to find. He's not surprised By what is there when he gets there he knows that it's the passover and that pilgrims are streaming into jerusalem perhaps as many as a quarter million people there which means that perhaps there are as many as a quarter million lambs to be slain and we need to understand that as each of them bring their lamb forth to be slain to to atone for their sins that it couldn't be just any lamb it had to be a spotless lamb a perfect lamb without spot without blemish and and they had to pass a priestly inspection the priest would look at him and make sure that the lamb that they had brought forth was up to snuff now now see there was a problem and the problem was this that the priests had a vested interest in rejecting the lambs that people brought why well because because let's say you brought a lamb from home and you, you get there and you bring it and, and you give it to the priest. And you say, here's the lamb we're going to, we're going to uh, go ahead and have sacrifice to atone for our sin. He, he might say, well, no, it looks like there's a problem with this lamb, but no worries. We've got you taken care of. We have lambs for sale. In fact, they're pre-approved. You know, kind of like the, the credit card mailings you might get. You've been pre-approved. These lambs are pre-approved. They're great. Don't worry about it. You don't even need to go to the store. We've got them right here on site. They're here. And, you know, for the convenience, they're only ten times the fair price. Wow. They really did that? Yes, they really did that. Beyond that, the the people who sold the lambs were there because because the priest had sold them, essentially, franchising rights. You know, they were able to erect their shops (laughs) to sell their sheep, right there on site, at the temple. The high priest took a percentage of what they had made and on top of that, on Passover, everybody had to pay a temple tax. There's a temple tax to be paid. It was, it was a half shekel, uh, but, but the catch was this. It had to be paid in the local currency. But no worries. You've come from a far-off city. You don't have the local currency. That's all right. We have money changers on hand. They can change your money for you. It won't be a problem. There's only a 25% charge for exchanging currency. Once again, the priests skimming money off the top. I couldn't help but think as I as I was studying this week and preparing this week and thinking about this, I, I couldn't help but recall how Martin Luther just, just was, was perplexed and, and and had horror at the unscrupulous and sacrilegious and even heretical actions in his day of, of the church in their wanting to raise money to build St. Peter's Cathedral in, in Rome, and how how they were doing this very same kind of thing. And I wonder how the church could have possibly gone along with this until I remember that they didn't know the scriptures, they didn't have the scriptures in their own languages. And and because they neglected the scriptures, because they neglected the word of God, they were easily led astray. Let this never be the case with us, for there is nothing new under the sun. Well, imagine the temple area. You're there. There are all around people selling their sheep. All kinds of lambs here. They're there. They're there. They're smelly, they're loud, there's people exchanging currency, and they're trying to get your attention. No, don't go over there. Come over here. Come over here. I've got what you need. Come come over here. I've got a better rate than him. Come come here. Come here. This is in the temple. Imagine. You know, I I know some of you would would have great difficulty worshiping here today if, if it were a different worship style than we have. Right? If, if the music was a little different, or if, if the way we set things up was a little different, or, or even, goodness forbid, if you had somebody sitting in your seat and you had to sit in a different seat. Right? You know, these things would make it absolutely impossible for me to worship. Okay, well, imagine the people here. They're here trying to worship. And there are people screaming out and and animals making noises and wandering around and smelling and and there's all this filth and and pollution and unmitigated sin in their presence. And you can see why Jesus responded as he did. Why this was such an affront. He in verse 45, we see began to drive out those who sold. And it's interesting the word drive out there in Greek is ekbalo. And and what it is is the very same word that is used when jesus cast out demons from those who are possessed that is what he did here it is no less a spiritual act going on here than when jesus drove out demons from those who have been demonized of course luke is very brief very concise in how he says it here He just says, quite simply, he entered the temple, he began to drive out those who sold. Now, we know from parallel passages a little bit more about what went on. Matthew tells us that Jesus actually flipped tables and overturned seats. And and Mark tells us that he would not even let anyone carry anything through the temple that means he he drove the people out he flipped over the tables and the seats and he wouldn't even let them take their things with them as they left how how did he do this i mean he's just one man well john tells us in in another tale and this just to take a quick step back john has a cleansing of the temple at the beginning of jesus ministry and most commentators think that that is a separate occurrence than this but it really doesn't matter whether it's a separate occurrence or the same occurrence we can expect that Jesus acted in the same way in both occasions and 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 in John John tells us that Jesus actually took some cords and fashioned a whip and began to drive people out with a whip okay Jesus is not happy he is he is very upset and he is taking drastic action at this point He is fulfilling Malachi 3, verses 1 and 2, which read that the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. You see, Jesus comes like a, a fire burning, burning In his wrath at this time, if the only Jesus you know is gentle Jesus, meek and mild, you would not recognize the man who was overturning tables and driving people out with a whip. But who Jesus was on that day and who Jesus is today is the very same. He was and is still the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is fierce and he is mighty and he is powerful. That he is God. He was wrathful on that occasion. It wasn't just the sorts of things that they were doing. It was where they were doing. We need to know and understand the makeup of the temple to really get the full gist of this. The the temple, at the core of the temple, was the temple proper. The holy of holies and the most, you know, the the holy place and the holy of holies. They were were at the core of it. and, And that's... That's where God dwelt, uh, and then there was a court of priests outside. That's where the priests obviously were and did their work, and and regular people couldn't go into that area. They could see into that area, but they couldn't go into that area. But the next area around that was called the court of men, and guess who got to go there? Men, right? And then and then there was another court out around that. That was the court of women, and that's where the women had to stay. But then the the largest court around the outside still within the temple walls, was called the Court of the Gentiles. That's where Gentiles had to stay, foreigners, or people who were ceremonially unclean. They had to stay out there, and, and there was even a sign that would be posted that they've actually found this, and unearthed There there's a sign that said, no foreigner is to go beyond the balustrade in the plaza of the temple zone. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow. Welcome to church. It didn't actually say the welcome to church part, I added that. Yeah. So it was very foreboding. And yet, the court of the Gentiles is where all these animals would have been. See, that's the only place they could be. They, they weren't allowed to go anywhere else if they came to the temple. And yet all the space is taken up by these animals and these money changers and these people selling these things and you know everybody else could still go into the inner courts get away from it worship in peace but not the gentiles and yet the temple was supposed to be a place of gentile evangelism it was it was part of the purpose of god actually to to reach out to the world dating all the way back to Abraham. That was the Abrahamic blessing. He said that, that I will bless you, that that all the families of earth will be blessed through you. And when Solomon first built the temple, part of his prayer is told to us in 1 Kings 8. He says, likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. And when he comes and prays toward this house, Here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. That's when the temple was first built. Solomon's already concerned about it being used to reach out to the people of the nations. And we read before, The unison scripture reading. What was it that God said? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. You see, God doesn't care where you come from. What he cares is that you come to him. Come to him, and you can do that only through the person of Jesus Christ. Doesn't matter where you come from. And so it is that Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and said to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer. He's quoting that passage in, in Isaiah. And, and Mark actually tells us that Jesus actually said the whole quotation. Luke is more brief in each of his portions here, but he said that he actually said, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. He is concerned about the evangelistic impulse and goal here—that that the word of God should should have an outward focus. The people of God should have an outward focus, and we should be looking to people everywhere, not only looking inward toward ourselves. And we wanted others to know that the temple was the place where man and God could meet. Now that was how things were supposed to be for all of eternity, dating back to. Adam in the garden, right? God met with Adam in the garden and and all things were wonderful and perfect until Adam sinned and the fall and this perfect fellowship was broken. Well, that's why the temple came into being. Why God gave the temple was so that there would be a way. For God and man to fellowship once again, he would dwell in the midst of his people and they could be with him. The idea is he'd take up residence right there with them. Eden had lost this great blessing, but through the temple, God would give it to his people once again. For at the temple, not only did he dwell, but sacrifices were made to atone for the sins of the people. It was to be this wonderful place but you have made it a den of robbers jesus says robbers because because you have robbed worshipers by charging them these exorbitant prices and and exorbitant exorbitant rates of exchange for this money changing robbers because you have robbed from the the poor and and the widows and the orphans they're supposed to be the focus of your charity and and of your true religion and and yet Instead, chief priests are skimming off the top and keeping money for themselves and, and turning the, the church, as it were, into a money-making scheme for themselves. You are robbers, most importantly, because you are robbing God of your glory," he says. Look, robbing God of the glory that's due His name. And God realizes it. And so Jesus comes. When he says, he made it a den of robbers. He's actually quoting from Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 7, a message that Jeremiah gave that he gave on this very spot at the temple. He proclaimed, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say hear the word of the lord all you men of judah who enter the gates to worship the lord thus says the lord of hosts the god of israel amend your ways and your deeds and i will let you dwell in this place do not trust in these descriptive words this is the temple of the lord the temple of the lord the temple of the lord see what he's saying to them is is you, you're trusting in the idea that this is the temple of god just because you have the temple you're good but but this is not the reality because you have left my ways you have You have turned your back on walking with me. And if you continue to do that, judgment will fall upon you. That's the way it was in Jeremiah's day. And and it's the way it is in our day too, is it not? With the people of God, we've in many ways turned our back on God. It is not he who has turned his back on us. But we have turned our back and we are wandering away and we need to repent of our sin and turn back to him so that judgment does not fall upon us as it would fall upon them. This is the message that Jesus was bringing. And so he had to retrain them. He had to retrain them. We see that he was teaching daily in the temple, verse 47. doesn't say exactly what he was teaching them, but we do know this. All the people were hanging on his words. Well, we can be sure that at least part of what he was teaching them was that they needed to be faithful. They needed to repent of their sins. They needed to turn back to God, like Jeremiah who's prophesying that, that if they did not do rightly, to relate to God instead of misusing the temple, then they would see his judgment. Beyond that, we see that the way Jesus comes into the temple and what what he is passionate about, we see he's passionate about justice and mercy for the poor and the outsider. He's passionate about the people of God gathering to pray with one another and for one another. We see that he's passionate about taking the gospel to to the ends of the earth even, it's what we call missions. We see that he's passionate about the true worship of God by all who would willingly offer it, and he's passionate about the glory of God, perhaps most of all. And if we see that Jesus is passionate about these things, then we should be passionate about them too. We should be passionate as well. And so will we be those who are hanging on his every word? Not everyone was. The chief priests and the scribes, we see in verse 47, and the principal men of the people were talking about the, the leaders. They were seeking to destroy him. So often we're just like those religious leaders. Now you say, wait a second, Pete, I, I'm not seeking to destroy Jesus. I don't want to do that. But so often we are just like them because we're more concerned with our personal agendas than we are truly with right and wrong. Just think about, think about your political views, for instance, and the criticisms that you're willing to levy against people who, who are of the other party, whatever the other party happens to be for you. And ask yourself, am I, am I willing and and not even willing, but passionate about and and committed to criticizing people of my party every bit as much as I criticize people of the other party when they do the same things. If you say you are, then you're part of a very, very small minority. I know that I'm not. I trust most of you aren't as well. It's because we become more committed to our agenda than we are to that which is good and right and true and beautiful. We must seek after Christ and his glory above all else, his kingdom above all else. Quickly we see that they could not find anything they could do for all the people who were hanging on his words that would not keep them from trying and of course succeeding only days later when Jesus would be crucified. But we see in that even how God's plan went forth and how Jesus replaces the temple. It's not explicitly said in this passage, but every passage about the temple really prepares us for this truth that Jesus is the one who replaces the temple. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. How did he do that? He did that through dying on the cross. That is where purification was made for our sins. And he showed himself to be the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All those other lambs that were slaughtered, those perfect spotless lambs of God that were slaughtered and and were sacrificed for the sins of the people were merely pointing forward to him. He who truly was the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so when John says, in speaking about his vision of the new heavens and the new earth that will come one day, when new Jerusalem descends down out of heaven and heaven and earth become one, he says, I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The Lamb, because Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God, is The temple, the place where purification is made for our sins, the place where where people meet with God. Jesus is that place. He is that sacrifice. He is the temple. For not only did he die, but three days later, he rose again. And sin and death were defeated. Those were the enemies that he came to conquer. Those were the the foes that he came to vanquish, the bondage from which he came to free his people. And so even in this world of sin and brokenness, know that God is at work. God is at work. If he's able to work through the worst of events, the most heinous of events, when Christ died on the cross, he can work through whatever it is that you are facing. Turn to him. Trust in him. Know that this is my father's world. But let me never forget that though the wrong is oft so strong, God is the ruler, yet this is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied. And earth and heaven be one. Let's pray. Our Lord, we...